Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Good morning, church. It's a reading of God's word. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For this is the hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Hussein. You guys can grab a seat. Hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. My name is Aaron Nelson, and I am the Salt Company Director here at Hill City. Last week, we finished our series, The Throne. We just had a quick recap of it from our C team. And over this series, we took a look at the people's king and God's king, and how we had this pattern that developed throughout this series. And it was this, that there was this king put in place. And this king, when put in place, would not be able to fully follow the instruction of God. And yet, despite that, God would still use these messed up, imperfect rulers to fulfill his purpose. So as we're going throughout the stories, this was a pattern that continued to to go about and about. And so we had the people's king and the God's king. And now, as we enter into our final series of the year, we are in Advent and we are going to be taking a look at the king of kings. The king of kings, it's what everything has been building up to. And over the next four weeks in the Advent season, we're going to be taking a look at Romans 8. And as we're taking a look at Romans 8, we're going to be looking at this in order to take a look at a different attribute of our king and see how his arrival is good news and a source of joy for all who call on him. And if you're anything like me, Advent didn't mean a whole lot to me growing up. I didn't really have an understanding of why we celebrate Advent. And so just a, a overarching run over, a quick run over of Advent, the word Advent itself means the arrival of or the coming of. And so what, obviously what we celebrate as we approach Christmas is the arrival of Jesus. And one of the main things, of the, one of the main purposes of Advent is, is that we want to look at our heart posture as we approach the Christmas season. What is our posture? How do we show up to Christmas? Living in a culture of consumerism, right, where we like to, res- where we like to give, we like to get things in a, in, a, in a culture that says Christmas is about gifts and things like that, we as the church want to be reminded why it is that, that the Christmas season is important besides what media says. It's taking the time to orient our heart posture towards God's purpose for history. Because God has a purpose for history. And so that's what we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks as we step into Advent. But before we start today, let me just start us off with prayer. 
Lord, thank you for your arrival. Thank you for your goodness and the fact that we have a king of kings, a perfect king, a king that we can come together every week to celebrate and to learn from and learn about. I pray as we enter into the Advent season that you will allow us um, the ability to be reminded why um, the last week of December is so important, that it's a reminder of the birth of the coming king that we've waited for so long for. You're good. It's your name I pray. Amen. So like I said, I am the director of Salt Company. Um, and what we do every year at the end of the year, around the end of May, is we actually take a step back and look at our ministry. We look at our organization and we want to ask some questions of like, okay, what's going well? Right? What do we want to continue to do? What do we want to keep doing? And we also want to take some time to look, okay, where do we feel like we're not going in the right direction? Where do we think we're falling short? So we do this every year, and here's what we realized as we were doing this this past year. We felt this sense that we were starting to focus a little too much on self. Like becoming a little too much inward focused. We identified a need, and it was absolutely a need, and the need was like, we need to address brokenness, we need to address our stories, we need to take a look at how our stories affect our current realities. That was absolutely a need. But we became so focused on this need that we started to, we realized we started to lose sight of the overarching purpose of a follower of Jesus, which is to love God and to love others first. Like that's what we're ultimately called to. And, and here's what I want to make sure I make very clear, like looking at our stories and how it affects our brokenness is incredibly important. But the issue is when we became solely focused on that. Like it was getting too much of our time and attention. And so through that, we decided we, want, we wanted to take a course correction to get back on course. But here is the issue. Is, is as we were looking at our brokenness and as we were only focusing on our stories, we just ended up finding ourselves getting lost in it. Like we were just lost in our own issues. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with my current situation? And it honestly just started to consume everything we were teaching about, everything we were talking about. And here's the reality. I don't believe this is a salt company issue per se. I think this is a humanity issue, right? I think as we consider our lives, as we take time to look at our current realities, it's very easy for us to get caught up in what's not going well, what is right in front of me, and what is my current situation. It's an overarching humanity issue. And sometimes because of that, we start to lose sight of some of the foundational aspects of the gospel. Why are we here? Why do we follow Jesus? Is there more to following Jesus in oneself or one's current situation? And that's exactly where Paul is taking us this week as we look at Romans 8. As Braden read earlier, is we're going to be taking a look at how our realities affect how we follow Jesus, how our suffering affects how we follow Jesus. So we're going to be in verses 18 through 25. Before we hop in, I think it's important to bring to like, like where are we at? We're hopping right in the middle of a letter. Uh, and so it's important for us to know like Paul is writing this letter to this group of people who are, Christian who are Jewish Christian believers and non-Jewish Christian believers. And he's writing this because there's, there's division between these two different groups of people, right? You have the Jewish believers who grew up with the old covenant, the old law, and then there's these non-Jewish Christian believers who haven't ever dealt with that. And so they're kind of addressing the question of like, what do we do with the traditional law? Do we keep it? Do we keep parts of it? Do we just get rid of all of it? And so Paul here is writing to these Romans 
to give a full explanation of the gospel. Here is what the gospel is. For us, we call it the green book, right? The gospel center life, we have classes here to, to lay out a gospel foundation for new or continuing believers. Like here is what it means to live a gospel center life. The Romans had the letter from Paul here. This was their gospel-centered life. And so in this letter, Paul answers questions like, what does it mean to tangibly follow Jesus? How do I think about following Jesus? What tools are necessary? What does it look like? And these are the questions that Paul is going to continue to answer as we step into verse 18. You can follow with me on the screen behind me. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So Paul starts us off here with a a contrasting statement. We have two different ideas. One, the current suffering of a spirit-filled, Jesus-proclaiming Christian. He calls it the suffering of this present time. But then he contrasts it with this idea of our glory that is to be revealed to us. Right, this promised hope that is to come. And as he's addressing the suffering aspect, he's letting us know right off the bat, listen, one of the foundational parts of following Jesus is that there is a cost to following Jesus and that's suffering. Like it comes hand in hand, it's a package deal. If you follow Jesus, you are subject to suffering. But then he, he, he also hints towards this promised hope, this glory that is going to be revealed to us. And this hope that we see started here is going to continue to be hinted at as we continue throughout the rest of this text. So we get into verse 20. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So here's what Paul lays out for the Romans. Here's the problem. Here's the diagnosis of the issue at hand, and it's this, is that all of creation is subject to futility, or frustration, or incompleteness, or, or brokenness. Like, all of creation is subject to this futility. He even gives further insight as he continues. He talks about that we are in bondage, that we're corrupt. And what Paul's doing here, as he does throughout much of Romans, is he's alluding to Genesis, Specifically, Genesis 3 in the creation narrative. And talking about how Adam and Eve and the generations to follow Adam and Eve chose sin. Like the people that God had created, God's creation chose sin and God gave them over to what they wanted. Romans 1 says it this way, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And so God has subjected humanity to this futility. When I say subjected, God did not choose futility for humanity. He's not the one who, who, he's not the one who wanted it. We were the ones who wanted it. I, uh, one of the ways I view it, so 
all of us in here were 16 at one point, unless you're not 16 yet, and I'm sure many of you, like me, did some really stupid things when you were 16. For me, one of those stupid things was uh, one weekend I decided with one of my friends that we were each going to get a dozen glazed daylight donuts and a half gallon of milk, chocolate milk each, and we were, we were going to eat all of it before lunchtime. Why, you ask? No idea. Some people have their Everest. Mine was a dozen donuts and chocolate milk. But we decided we were going to eat all of this, all these donuts and drink all this milk. And so I call my mom, and I'm telling her, like, hey, you're going to spend the night at my buddy's house tonight. just wanted to let you know. Also, you want to hear something funny? Here's what we're going to do. And like every loving mother says, she goes, Aaron, that's really dumb. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, well, first of all, tomorrow night you have a basketball game at 7, and so it just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. You're going to feel like garbage, and you're going to play like garbage, and then you're probably going to end up puking. I'm like, Mom, I know what I'm doing. I got it. So what do we do the next morning? We accomplished our goal. We nailed it. All done before like 11.15 that morning. It was awesome. And then I proceeded the rest of the day to feel like my insides wanted to be on my outside. Like it was horrible, felt like garbage all day long. Went and played basketball. Actually played great, not going to lie. Didn't affect how I played. <laughs> Still played fine. But I felt horrible. It was horrible. And my mom, I remember at the end of that conversation, she's like, all right, suit yourself. Like if this is what you want to do, you do you. This isn't a perfect analogy to perfectly convey how God worked with humanity when it came to this futility, but he gave us over to what we already wanted. He didn't say, go do this. No, we chose it, and he just allowed us to have what we already wanted. And so through that, the groaning of creation was set in motion. This groaning we see come about throughout Romans 8. I want to clarify what I, what I mean when we're talking about creation here. This is, this is a word that is used a lot throughout this verse, throughout this text. When he's, when he's referring to creation, we look back, he says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. And so it's not just humanity, like all of creation, everything from land to sea to animal to humanity groans together. Paul takes time here to personify creation, like this idea that creation is waiting. Creation is groaning together. Groaning together has like this sense of like lamenting, like this inward sadness, this inward lamenting and mourning process. Every time I preach, especially for Sundays, Danny Mac is like my phone a friend. Like anytime I'm like, don't understand that, bink, Danny, help me out. And so I actually texted Danny very specifically about this section right here, about creation groaning. And I just asked him the question, like, what are some ways you think creation groans? What are some ways you think creation groans? And I loved his response. He, his immediate response was like, hey, don't get me started. And if you know Danny Mac, that's a really funny, like, thing for him to say. Because I was like, oh, geez, like, what, what's about to happen? But then he finally, he gave me some answers. And I'm paraphrasing what he said. But he started with, like, we have a responsibility as part of God's creation to take stewardship over the rest of creation. Like, it's part of our role as also creation. He said, take a trip to Haiti. He said, take a look at your neighborhoods and help better your neighborhoods. 
I love this. He said, thorns and thistles were never part of God's design. Like there's just this sense of like the brokenness, even of the material world, the non-human world. Like it doesn't just, it's not just humans who have been affected by this groaning. It's like all of creation is growing and it's deteriorating. And there's a call upon us here of even like, what does it mean for us to take stewardship over creation? But Paul makes sure to emphasize here that it's not just creation that groans. He also makes it very clear we groan too. Like we as as Jesus-following, spirit-filled people are not exempt from the groaning. It doesn't just disappear because we follow Jesus. Sin is still a problem that needs an answer. It's still a reality. We are still sick with sin Even as Christians, we are still battling sin. When we consider ourselves, we have this internal leaning that is away from God. Right? We have this heart, this natural heart posture that opposes the heart of God. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit, and yet we still find ourselves rebelling against God's design. About a chapter earlier in Romans 7, I think Paul writes one of the most, at least personally, one of the most relatable verses in all the Bible. Romans 7.15, he says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. That's my story. I don't want to love myself more than I love my wife as often as I do. I don't want to get up on this stage on Sunday morning or a Thursday night and want to seek validation from people. I don't want to look at how other Christians live their lives with pride and judgment, but guess exactly what I do. The thing I don't want to do. And it's this heart posture that is naturally opposed to God's will. And this internal opposition leads to external destruction. Like that doesn't just stay with us. It leads to action. It leads to propelling other brokenness. And so as we look even in the church, like divorce runs rampant. We see churches splitting over disagreements on theology. We see left and right with media now, like just pastoral failure after pastoral failure. And so we too as Christians are left groaning left feeling the frustrations of our current reality, suffering from our incompleteness, and still anticipating the completion of our redemption. Like the fact that the work has started, but has not yet been fully brought to fulfillment. But here's the thing, we don't suffer and groan in vain. It comes with being a Jesus, a Jesus follower. Right? Remember at the very beginning we talked about there is a suffering at the cost of following Jesus. They're a package deal. And that draws us back to what Paul said earlier that we skipped past. This is actually one of the most important parts of this whole text. And it shows us where Paul was going all, all along. And it's back in verse 20. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, right? We've already talked about that. This frustration, this feeling of incompleteness, 
Like that is our current state. But here's the phrase right here. This is the most, this is like where we can hang our hat and thank God for this truth. But he says that we were subjected to it in hope. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In hope. When we say in hope, that means wishful thinking. Right? When we think in hope, it means wishful thinking. It's like, I'm going to invest in this stock in hopes that it makes me lots of money. Or I'm going to date this person in hopes that I'll gain clarity on whether or not I want to marry them or not. But that's not how Paul is using in hope right here. No, it's more like this idea of with hope. With hope. So instead of wishful thinking, it's guaranteed hope. It's obtained hope. It's not, like, it's not wishful thinking. It's not like hoping something is going to come to fruition. It's something that's already happened. It's with hope. You see, God knew it was going to be this way. God knew about our brokenness. He knew there needed to be a plan to save us. And so he's put a plan in place to cleanse us of all of the suffering and of all of the sin and of all of the death. And that is still the plan that is working itself out today as we sit in here. Which brings us to the pinnacle of this whole text. Verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Notice the past tense used here. When we think of hope, we think future tense. What's to come? But this is referring back to this idea of obtained hope. Right? That the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is what is already has saved us. Right? We're not waiting for that to come. That has already happened. We have already been saved. Our hope has already been given. This is the Jesus talk here. For it's in Jesus we were saved. He is that hope. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. As we consider the world around us and as we consider our lives in this idea of redemption, we don't fully see our redemption yet. Right, we, we see glimpses of redemption, maybe for, for hopefully a lot of us in our stories, we've seen God's redemption in our lives and how he's moved, moved in us. And maybe even as we look at the lives around us, we see glimpses of the redemption of God taking place, but we don't fully recognize redemption yet. But you know what we do see a lot of? Death and corruption. Brokenness. This futility. And that's what makes hope challenging. Because our suffering is tangible. Our suffering is physical, like we can put our finger on it. A lot of times we can see it or hear it or feel it. Like our, our, our suffering is tangible, like we can wrap our minds around it. But when we look at our hope, our hope is supernatural. Our hope is not something that we can like put our finger to. It's not tangible. It's actually much bigger than tangible. It's actually fantastic that it's not tangible because anything tangible doesn't last forever. 
But it makes it difficult because our suffering is like in front of us. We can touch it. We can feel it. So for those of you who are new here, uh, we're in the process right now of building a new building for Hill City. And we're really excited about it. It's coming up quick. We're looking forward to moving day. Um, and part of that I want to start off with is like this, the Glory Cedar has been one of the biggest blessings to Hill City Church ever. Like, holy cow, they have been so incredible to us, and it has blessed this church and the people of this church immensely. And at the same time, it's come with its shortcomings, right? It's not ideal that uh, parents, that you have to corral four kids and walk six and a half blocks to get to church, right? It's not ideal. It's not optimal to at night have to walk in through a sketchy alleyway. It's not the best. It's also not the best that on a Sunday when you show up in here, you don't know whether you should wear short sleeves or you should wear four layers because you're sitting in a meat locker for a Sunday morning. Right? Like, it's not optimal. It's not the best of situations. Even though we're thankful for it, it hasn't always been the best. There's been their fair share of shortcomings. I don't know if you guys have driven by recently, though, but Hill City, like, we have a church building. Like, it's, like, up there is a lot of that church that's done. There's still some stuff that's got to get finished, but we have a church building, and it's exciting. And I've been here for three and a half years, and I'll tell you, there has been plenty of times in my three and a half years where I have felt like there was no shot that church was ever going to get finished. Absolutely no shot. Why? Because most of the time, up until the last year, there was just an empty lot or some shady building that was on it. And so for a long time, it was like, there's just no way. I have no hope that this building is going to get completed. We're going to be stuck on the third floor of the Glaze for, uh, for our offices forever and in here on Sundays forever. Why? Because the shortcomings of our current situation were very tangible. Right? I knew for Salt Company the weeks that we didn't know where we were meeting for midweek the next week. Like, that was very real to me. On Tuesday, showing up, knowing I have meetings to have, and yet knowing I have no idea where I'm going to have these meetings because we're running out of office space. Like all of those things were very tangible, and it made me lose sight of the hope for the building to come. And the same can be true of when we look at our suffering as followers of Jesus. The same thing can be said as we lose hope I'm going to throw up something on the screen behind me. Um, so we take a look at our suffering, right? And our suffering, we feel it, we get, here's what happens is we get really focused in on it. Like we get like tunnel vision towards our suffering. And so we look over here and we see our loneliness. Like we see the fact that we live in a world that's more connected than ever, but less intimate than it's ever been. We look back here and we see when we turn on the TV, we see worlds, at, I mean, nations at war with one another. And like the presence of suffering that surrounds us. We, we look at this and we see the phone call that we received from the doctor about that diagnosis we've been dreading. We start to get really focused in on our suffering. And so because of that, we lose sight of ultimately the bigger thing because of this tunnel vision. And that's what Paul is drawing us back to here. Which is as we zoom out, we go from our suffering to our hope. And it's the fact that our current suffering is incomparable to our promised hope. That's how Paul started this whole thing off with. 
is that our current suffering is incomparable to our promised hope. And here's what I want us to recognize. One, if you look in on that H, that's where our suffering still is. The suffering we experience is very real. Paul is not minimizing suffering. Actually, in fact, he's doing the opposite. He's validating it. He's saying like, yes, this is a real thing we as Christians and as humanity go through. We are suffering people. The suffering is real. I know a lot of the stories in this room. Like I've seen the suffering firsthand. And so please don't hear me saying like, forget about your suffering, just place everything in the, like just only think about your hope, like this, the suffering is real, we need to talk about it, we need to address it. But Paul's call here is to remember the bigger picture of our hope. That even in the midst of your current suffering, even in the midst of your current reality, that your hope actually allows endurance. Because, yeah, when you focus in on your suffering, you can really lose sight of the bigger picture of the hope that Jesus has granted all the people who call on his name. And so this call of patience and the end of verse 25 from Paul is so important for us. We have to be able to cling to our hope in order to hold on during our suffering. It gives us the bigger picture of where we're going. Suffering is made endurable because we know how the story ends. It is our future hope. It's a future hope for creation. It's a future hope for followers of Jesus. But it's also a hope that's been accomplished. And that's what we call the already but not yet. Right, the already being that Jesus has already accomplished his purpose. Which was his life, death, and resurrection ultimately freeing creation from bondage and corruption. His life, death, and resurrection, which ultimately is going to restore creation back to its glory. Like, that's already been accomplished. Also in part, of that restoration, he sent his spirit to indwell in his people. Like that's also part of this enduring suffering. Like let's not leave out the Holy Spirit's role in all of this. Like the spirit helps produce endurance in us. It's one of the, Paul here refers to these first fruits of the spirit. One of those fruits is patience or endurance. Like the spirit, which, which is the, the, the part of God who indwells in us has been given to us that, that helps us to endure and also inspires greater hope and also helps us battle sin. So we have the already, but then we also have the but not yet. The fact that, yes, Jesus has already completed the work. And we do have the spirit, but we still find ourselves in a world of death in a world of sin and destruction, in a world that we very clearly recognize that we have not been made fully like Jesus yet. And that's exactly why we celebrate Advent. Because Jesus is our hope fulfilled, and also, he's our hope to be fulfilled. 
he has already arrived, and at the same time, we await his return. And that's the hope we hold on to. That's the hope we cling to, is the return. And the hope we cling to for the future, the future that we get revealed to us in Revelation 21.5, it says, He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's our hope. That there's a day to come when we are no longer dealing with suffering. We are no longer dealing with groaning. We're no longer dealing with bondage and corruption. And ultimately, we're receiving what Paul is talking about here, our adoption as sons and daughters and the redemption of our body. That Hill City, the corporate body of Christ, is going to finally reach the the completion of our redemption. That's obtained hope. That's not wishful thinking. That's the vision for our lives. That's what we wait on. If you're serving communion, you can go ahead and start getting into place. As I was preparing for today, uh, I came across this George Washington Carver quote, uh, the inventor of peanut butter, if you didn't know. Really appreciate that guy. And I came across this quote from him. That said, where there is no vision, there is no hope. Where there is no vision, there is no hope. Hill City, what I just read is our vision. That our current suffering, our current realities are not forever. They will not always be here. We will not always have to turn on the TV and see a world at war with itself that we will not have to continue to receive phone calls from doctors about death and destruction and sickness and disease. That is coming to an end and that is the vision that Paul here is instilling in us too and this vision is what gives us hope. And it's not the kind of hope you have to wish for, it's the hope you already have when you say, he is Lord and Savior of my life. So we have this promised king who has come and who is going to return again, and he is the king of kings. The Lord of lords. And so as we take communion today, and you break off that bread that represents the body of Christ, and you dip it in the juice that represents the blood of Jesus, May it be a reminder to just that. That's why we do this every week, is it serves as a reminder of our hope. A hope that can only be put on the shoulders of Jesus and Jesus alone. No one else could ever shoulder that weight of your full hope, but through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he can. So as we stand and take communion today, may that be your hope.